And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Soccer Show and our latest batch of listener questions. On today's show, we're discussing World Cup blowouts, the benefits of being a one-club player, the intricacies of Liga Romekis, and much, much more. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today to sort through the mailbag is a man who may or may not share my level of interest in the Ballon d'Or. Taylor Rockwell, I found out the Ballon d'Or was happening earlier this week after it happened. How about you? <laughs> I was going to say, if your interest in the Ballon d'Or is about zero, then yeah, I do share that interest. I think it's interesting we've got a, a new person winning it. Uh, congrats to Kareem the Dream, is I believe what, I, what I've heard him called on other podcasts, so I will go with that. But Ugh. yeah, that aside, not a huge amount of interest for me. Yeah, Taylor, I've seen him addressed also on the socials as KB9. KB9. Oh, we're doing that now? Is that mm. what we're doing? Oh boy, yeah. okay. Not sure about that one either. But anyway, yeah. Ballon d'Or. Yay. Uh, I always wonder what happens when they change their number. I guess he won't ever not be the number nine, but still, it's always awkward when you have to be like, KB9, cross that out. KB10 now. I I, I moved a little bit deeper. Well, Cristiano Ronaldo literally did that, Tay-Tay, did he not? Yes, he did. Good point. Good point. (laughs) Indeed. It's just a brand new exercise. Also joining (laughs) us, Tay-Tay, a man whose name I saw on a t-shirt on a person from Austin. Hello, Joe Lowry. Hello, Ryan Bailey. I was on the t-shirt. I'm still trying to track down where I can buy one of those. So if you're out there, any Austin fans or anybody who knows about this t-shirt that they're wearing with all the preseason predictions from Twitter experts like me, as Gerhard Struber would say, um, please tell me where to find it because I will, I will buy it. I will. I'll do it. <laughs> Joe, I'm slightly nervous. If I see a headline that's like Gerhard Struber attacked in the street, am I going to have to find out that it was you? I don't. I think it's going to be the other way around, Taylor. Have you? Oh, okay, I, he's I, coming I, for you. I think so. But given given what those comments were and how committed he seems to be to twisting the narrative around like a soft pretzel, I I don't think it's going to be me going yeah. towards him. That that Red Bull press, I think, would be pretty effective in a street fight. So watch. Agreed. Out, Agreed. I, I'm not yeah, worried. Going hard. Yeah. If we record tomorrow morning and Joe isn't there, I'm immediately calling the Phoenix police <laughs> and asking them to go be on the lookout for Gerhard. <laughs> Just me, as whenever someone says Struber, I think of Hans Gruber. Just me? Anybody? No? Cool. I've never seen them in the same room at the same time. There you so go. I'll say there that. There you go. Uh, rounding out our pack today, we have a man whose brand new car is not on his driveway because it's being held captive currently by West Ham fans. <laughs> is that true, Graham Rutherford? By West Ham fans? Wow. Yeah. Okay. Is that, is, is that a Diagonum connection? There are a lot of West Ham fans in, in Diagonum. I'm, I'm not particularly familiar with kind of the the footballing locales of, of, of London. So is, is yeah. that a West Ham stronghold? Is that where Green Street was filmed, Dagenham? Yeah, to clear up my, my weird intro listener, uh, Graham ordered a car from the Ford Motor Company, which is being held at Dagenham Motors, which is very much West Ham country. In, ah, they sponsored uh, West Ham, didn't they? They did sponsor the West Ham, yes. Uh, you may recognise them from the movie Made in Dagenham, if you saw that also set at the Ford plant there. It's the main Ford factory in England. Um, so I'm assuming, Graham, like when That's you do get your movie. car, that it's going to have like... Exist. 
yeah, it exists, it exists. Um, but uh, Gra- Graham's car's going to have like jelly deals all over it when he finally gets it. Is that right? Yeah. I, I mean, it's electric, so I'm anticipating bubbles coming out the back of it rather than exhaust That's smoke. right, yeah. Emission-free bubbles forever blowing from your tailpipe, Graham. That sounded disgusting. Indeed. It, yeah. it did a little bit, yeah. It did. It did. Ryan... I'm sorry, man. I, I'm still stuck on on Gerhard Struber, Hans Gruber, because in the third Die Hard, spoiler alert for Die Hard with a Vengeance, we find out that Jeremy Irons is Hans Gruber's brother, I believe. So now, now you got me wondering, and because like we've seen Werner Herzog be a villain in a movie before, in a Tom Cruise movie at that. So maybe we will get Gerhard Struber as like Hans Gruber's uncle, cousin. I don't know what it will be, but that could be the next Die Hard. Uh, I think you and I have some writing to do. How many Die Hards have there been? Has there been four? Too many. I th- I feel like there've been five or six. Okay. I'm a little bit nervous to to see the actual so number, but we've definitely, and- as with many other uh, movie franchises, uh, tipped into the there are more bad than good uh, yeah. uh, segment. Yeah, we've got Die Five, Die Furious coming at some point. I'm sure in the <laughs> franchise, we shall we'll get there eventually. Uh, guys, we're doing a live show in Brooklyn, New York. On November 20th, the first day of the World Cup, won't you join us? Uh, You can do so by looking in the description of this podcast and finding a ticket link. It's going to be an awful lot of fun. Who knows, Graham? Maybe you'll have a car by that point. But you won't I be. wouldn't count on it. <laughs> I really wouldn't. <laughs> the West Ham fans will not have released it to you at that point. By the way, fun fact, I once I- interviewed Idris Elba and he worked at uh, Dagenham Motors before he became an actor. Isn't that fun? What a name drop that was. That might have been the greatest one of all time. That was the greatest Ryan Bailey we've had so far. That was a Hall of Fame does, moment. Does he live in your brother's neighborhood, Ryan? I wasn't saying he was my pal. I said I professionally had an engagement with him once. Come on. Give me that he one. He just dropped it out of nowhere, though. Anyway, yeah, uh, come I'm and see Graham the live show. If you, to, if you want to hear me name drop and the other guys talk about soccer for an hour or so, it's going to be a lot of fun. Let's get to our listener questions, shall we? Katie. Kate E. Kate E. Kate E has been in touch. I had a dream last night in which Mexico Are you having lost... a fever dream right now? What's <laughs> so happening? It's Kate and then the surname first letter E. So I said Katie and it sounded confusing. Sorry, Kate e. It's like Karen O. Exactly. <laughs> this is going to be a good show. Kate oh, says, boy. I had a dream last night in which Mexico lost the opening match of the upcoming World Cup 9-0. This Go blowout on. made me wonder, out of all the World Cup group stage matches in the upcoming World Cup, which one do you think will have the biggest goal differential? Now, Taylor, Mexico, I believe their first game is against Iraq, so I think uh, disappointing if they lose that one 9-0. Uh, looking at some of the biggest wins in World Cup history, had a look through the history books, and Hungary have the record with a 10-1 win over El Salvador in 1982. Hungary also had a 9-0 win over South Korea in 54. And back in the more our lifetimes kind of era, we yep. had Germany famously beating Saudi Arabia 8-0 in 2002. Was that one in a stadium with a roof, I seem to remember? Maybe it was. That feels right. That's the Oliver yeah. Bierhoff topoke from like 40 yards out goal that will forever yeah. uh, loom in my memory. I remember watching that in my kitchen table. Memories. Was and also, I was thinking of few, once talking to Giselle about a terrible movie he was in with Beyonce. <laughs> I think I'll be doing that in a few years. Anyway, uh, Brazil won, Germany seven as well in 2014. Another famous big score. But Taylor, if you had to guess at a game which was going to give us the biggest differential, group stage or otherwise, what are you thinking? 
Uh, I'm thinking that I'm trying to remember the name of that movie because I remember it. It's when Ali Larder tries to steal him mm-hmm. from Beyonce. Uh, nice try, Ali Larder. No that was the movie he was Beyonce. promoting, and I wanted to talk about The Wire, and he did not. Anyway. Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, I First of all, answering this question, I love that we're about to guarantee multiple nil-nil draws, uh, be, and we're going to get like national team podcast receipts on Twitter. Joe, you'll be on shirts, or more shirts, I should say. Here is my approach to this question. Um, it's basically which teams am I most confident will be good at this World Cup, and then which teams am I sort of thinking might not be as strong. And so looking at will they end up playing against each other. I also removed any any like potential historical connections. France-Tunisia, I feel like Tunisia would uh, go go pretty hard in that one, so less likely to give up a ton of goals. And I think it also requires a team that is willing to kind of keep trying to make something happening. They won't just kind of shut down and bunker and hope for like maybe a 3-0 loss or something. And that is where maybe this one doesn't work, but I, this is going to be unpopular. Uh, I think the most likely candidate is Germany-Costa Rica. Uh, Costa Rica had to go through the playoff to get there. They aren't getting younger. Kaylor Navas is not playing at club level, so there are reasons for concern. Germany, recent form aside, they have an insane amount of talent. They usually tend to turn it on in major tournaments, and it's Germany-Costa uh, Rica on the final that's the final game of that group for them. And that could be with Germany needing a win because I think Japan are going to be very, very good. I feel like there's a chance Japan make it out of this group. And again, this is a group that is Germany, Spain, Japan, and Costa Rica. So Germany might have something to play for. And if Costa Rica are as poor as I think they might be, they could already be done. So you could see a German team really going for it, needing to get a result, a Costa Rica team like like kind of going out there, going through the motions, but maybe not being as up for it. And so I could see that one being a bit of a sizable victory for Germany. Mm, I like that. I had two answers written down. I had Group E's Germany versus Costa Rica. And Joe, the other one I thought might give us the biggest differential was in Group C, Argentina, Saudi Arabia. Yep. Arguably yep. The, one of the strongest and one of the weakest teams at the tournament, Joe. Yeah, they're on my list. I have two as well. Saudi Arabia-Argentina is a really good one. I think we saw Saudi Arabia against the U.S. back in September, and I thought they looked pretty toothless in the attack. The U.S. did too, so we should add that to this discussion. But I didn't think they looked very good. I thought defensively their scheme was strange, and a better team would have exposed them. Argentina is a better team. I believe that they are on a 35-game unbeaten streak right now. Argentina is in really good form heading into this World Cup. They are, in my mind, along with Brazil and maybe a couple of the European teams in that clear tier one of favorites. They have a stupid amount of really high-quality players. Saudi Arabia does not. Now, they will have a lot more time, Saudi Arabia, to prepare for the World Cup than most other teams. They're playing something like, or, or at least after the U.S. game, they were playing something like five or six friendlies outside of the FIFA window because they can with where their players are based. So they are going to get more reps and probably be a little more up to speed tactically heading into the tournament under Hervé Renard. But, I mean, you can only make up for so much with tactics when you are at a quality disadvantage like they'll be against Argentina. So that's one. The other one, and I don't feel quite as good about this one. I feel I feel great about half of it and not so great about the other half of it. It's Ghana-Portugal. So Ghana, I think, are probably the worst team at this World Cup. I, I think when you go in and look at the ELO ratings, which is a good sort of rough way to understand about which teams are good, which teams are bad, based off of a number of different factors like strength of schedule, based off of where they're playing games and the results and all that kind of stuff. Ghana's really not very good. Then making it all the way through AFCON, uh, sorry, through uh, through CAF qualifying was a huge surprise to me. 
I, I don't have very high expectations for them coming into this tournament. And Portugal are Portugal, which means two things. It means, number one, they also have a ridiculous amount of talent. But it also means, number two, that they are oftentimes conservative with how they play. They're not really all that interested in opening the game up. They're not really going to press their advantages at times, at least tactically. They're, they're going to stay more conservative and a bit more compact. So I, I do think Portugal will win this game. I do think it could be by a wide margin. But also, I, th- I think this one might end up being a little narrower than Argentina-Saudi Arabia just because Portugal are not exactly Argentina in how they approach games. No, they are not. Uh, Graham, your thoughts on this? Don't say England-USA. <laughs> Walker Zimmerman hat-trick, baby. Hey. <laughs> um, my real answer was Germany-Costa Rica, but I-, I would be worried if I was Australia having to face France in their, this, their first match. So they played each other at the 2018 World Cup and, and France actually needed an own goal, a late own goal to, to win 2-1. But I'd be surprised if it was this that close uh, this time because I, I think Australia are quite a bit weaker than they were four years ago. They've got a couple of uh, Scottish-born players in Jason Cummings and, and Martin Boyle. So I've, I've weirdly been watching them closer than would ordinarily be the case. And I've watched them a few times, including in the, in the playoff that they qualified for the World Cup from. And I haven't been impressed at all. They do score goals, but I, I think once you go to a higher level, once you go to World Cup level, they're going to struggle to score goals and they concede a lot of them, even in Asian qualifying, they conceded a lot of goals. So the question, I think, is whether Deschamps releases the handbrake and allows France to, to go for it in a major tournament match, um, which maybe he won't do that. But in terms of the talent disparity between France France and Australia, I think that's going to be vast. So that was that's a contender for me. And then the other one, is I do wonder if the Netherlands might thump Qatar. My theory here is that, um, so Qatar, they concede a few goals. They've not got the best defensive record and Netherlands score a few goals. So that's one thing, an obvious thing. But I also wonder if by the time of that final group game, so that's the last game of, of Group A, I predict Qatar might need a win to get through. So they're two kind of, well, they've got Senegal in their first game. Their second game's Ecuador. So maybe they pick up something from that game, which means their final fixture, they probably need a win from that game to, to get through to the last 16. So I think they might go after this match in a way that they might not have done if this was a, a first or even a second fixture. Um, so that that's my theory. I think the Netherlands are, are, are pretty good at playing through teams when there's space. Players like Memphis Depay and, and Frankie de Jong and all that, they're, they're, they're very good at that. So, yeah, that's another contender. And I know we'd all hate to see Qatar suffer humiliation on the world stage at, at their own tournament. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much, Kate E, not Katie, for that question. Let's move on to Richard Rolson, who says, Do you think the national team coaches might have a shelf life, a set amount of time they can succeed with their teams before their message gets lost on the players or the team needs a change? If you were in charge of your nation's national team, how long would you give a manager who's had a manner of success? Uh, Graham, I would suggest that all coaches have a shelf life, national team or otherwise. Yeah. And say Jurgen Klopp being the longest-serving Premier League manager at seven years indicates quite a lot. Yeah, so I, I can't remember who it was because it was it was a while ago. It was a number of years ago. But I remember something, someone tweeting a theory um, on how managers at the top level generally only have a shelf life of 10 years. And that is a bit of an arbitrary number. But the, the theory holds up rather well when you go through some of the best managers. So Mourinho, he won the Champions League with Porto in 2004 and his last league title was in 2015. Wenger, he arrived at Arsenal in 1996. And when, they, they, uh, when Arsenal moved into the Emirates, I think that's when people start to, to charge Wenger's downfall as manager that happened exactly 10 years after he arrived at Arsenal in 2006 Yogi Lowe he took over as Germany manager in 2006 and I'd say the decline for him started pretty much exactly 10 years on from that and there are a few notable examples so Carlo Ancelotti Pep Ferguson 
um, I would say, avoided this rule. But 10 years is such a long time in football that it's only natural that managers who are very much products of their time and of the current zeitgeist in football, it's only natural that they, they start to evolve out of the game. And I think part of the problem for national team managers is that, and I'm stating the obvious here, you can't change your squad like you can at, at, at club level. So I think players just stop listening to a, man, a manager's message after after a while. Um, and so the, the managers who avoid the 10-year rule are the ones who can constantly evolve their team so that their message is, is fresh to a new group of players. If you look at Ferguson, how he got rid of players quicker than anyone else, Yap Stam, Van Nistelrooy, Beckham, and at the time, a lot of those people, a lot of people thought he was making wrong decisions by getting rid of those players. But that allowed him to maintain an engaged group, and Pep has done something similar, and Ancelotti has kind of dotted around so many clubs that his message is, is always fresh when he goes into a dressing room. But if you're a national team manager, you obviously don't have that option to to the same extent. So I think keeping a group engaged over a long period of time is is probably a little bit harder for them. Yeah. Uh, Taylor, I think it, it might be obvious to say that a shelf life depends on the manner in which a coach meets their goal as well, doesn't it? Like Gareth Southgate, for example, at England, I don't think the quarterfinals of the World Cup are going to be enough for him to keep his job. He's expected to go to the final four and the finals of this tournament, no matter how lofty that expectation is, because of the progression of the Euros final and the World Cup semi-finals previously. Anything else isn't progression, and I think there's a lot of coaches who find themselves held against certain standards, right? Yeah, but I mean, if he comes up against a Brazil team that ends up winning the tournament and England <coughs> fight heroically and lose on penalties like after a one-to-one draw... Can you really say like, oh, that's that's definitely a failure for Gareth? You know Southgate. nothing like, about the English media. Yeah, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Right. Let me rephrase that. I would say that that is uh, being unfair. I think Gr- Graham has hit like the one side of it is that like players stop uh, listening to a manager so unless they kind of keep uh, the the players moving, they keep bringing in new blood. But I think that's way easier at club level, not just because you can buy and sell players, but because if you get rid of a player to bring in, if like uh, Real Madrid getting rid of Casemiro to bring in Chuomeni, it's not like Casemiro is then still eligible to play for them. And if Chuomeni has a down, down patch and Casemiro is playing really, really well, you will get that debate at national team level of like, well, why, why did you get rid of this guy? Shouldn't you be calling him in? And so I think even if you try to move on, you can still have those sort of distractions. But I think the other side of the coin is also true, and Yogi Lowe is a great example of this for me, that you can basically start to develop your favorites and the players that you're going to rely on and kind of keep bringing in and keep trusting to get the job done. But at a certain point, those players get long in the tooth. Those players aren't performing as well as they could have been or should be. And then you have youngsters coming through who maybe should be getting looks, and that's where the tension ratchets up. And I th- I really have come around to the idea that I think four years, I think the idea would maybe be to take over a national team two years before a World Cup. You get that first World Cup, and then if things are going well, you get another four years. Because then, then to me, it's like, okay, we're kind of seeing what you're putting in place. We're seeing how you're working. And then you have another cycle to get to that next World Cup, and hopefully it's all kind of come together by then. But I really am increasingly coming around to the idea of four years is a good cycle unless things really seem to be gelling. Everybody's really happy. Young players, old players, all integrated. I think you do have to kind of look at changing it up. Yeah, Taylor, I completely agree with that. I have something very similar down in my notes. I think generally speaking, one cycle is a good amount of time for a successful manager. I think there are cases where managers being around for longer periods can work. And obviously there are cases where maybe it should be shorter than four years, shorter than one World Cup cycle. So if my if my manager has success, and I, I'm, in, I'm in charge of U.S. soccer, let's say, and there's a manager that's doing very well, 
and is continuing to innovate and players still enjoy the environment, and I think both of those things are really important, then I would consider renewing after the World Cup, right? I think those are the moments where you say, okay, this is working well. Now there's no guarantee that it's going to continue to work well for four years, but we feel pretty confident that the results we can get with the manager we already have are trending in a positive direction, and they're better than whatever results we could get from the next person to come in and do this job. Yeah, then you say, okay, maybe longer than four years makes sense, but I think generally speaking, that doesn't really happen, right? That, that just doesn't happen in a lot of places. It certainly doesn't really happen on the men's side of U.S. soccer. So I, I think generally speaking, going for that four-year, roughly one World Cup qualifying cycle as a benchmark is useful, less or more depending on the context surrounding it. And just to answer the general question about um, a manager's shelf life in general, which is the point I think Graham was getting at, I present to you Roy Hodgson who has managed, as far as I can see, four different national teams, as well as, as, well as Premier, League, Premier League teams, as well as Serie A teams, as well, a host of major teams. Uh, his career was 46 years. Um, that's quite... He's like footballing long life milk. <laughs> sorry, I'm sure you would appreciate the analogy. Sorry, what is long life milk? Yeah, like UHT milk. Like, it does, you, don't, you know, it, you, you can keep it outside of a fridge and it'll just last forever. Yeah. You don't have that in America? Like the little milks you get. Taylor, do tiny... we have that? Yeah, in the little, in the tiny little things you pour in like coffee, those little things that don't go in the fridge. Wow, the creamer? You mean creamer? Yeah, you call I, it creamer. I, I'm not sure yeah, that's no, actually get... real milk, my friend. But you, <laughs> no, you get cartons of UHT milk for sure. I can I can picture them. I bought them before when I was a student, and they're cheaper. You learn something every day. Every day's a school day. Anyway, thank you very much, <laughs> Richard, is, for that this question. This is how zombies happen, right here. This is how zombies happen. Let's take a break. When we come back, more listener questions. Back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. David Beffert has been in touch. If you were a superstar soccer player, would you rather be a club legend who came through the academy and stayed there for your whole career? Or would you rather play for all of the best teams in Europe's best leagues, breaking records as you go? Joe, how do you feel about this one? There are very few one-club men in the game. There's Ryan Giggs, Francesco Totti, and a handful of others. Oh, Messi in the parallel universe where Barcelona are financially competent. There's a few <laughs> There's a few of them, but not as many as those superstars who go around to the biggest teams. How do you feel about this one, Joe? Yeah, so I, I think I would rather be a club legend. I, I think I would rather set down roots and make connections in the area. I think that's more my personality than it is to go around Joe and live in all these... Yeah, right? I want to. Absolutely, I do. That'd be sweet. I think you would get a lot of those experience. I, I think a lot of those experiences would be very fulfilling, and I think they, they do fit my personality much more than going to play for all these different clubs. I like to feel settled in places, and I think you would get that much more being a club legend, and you still get to travel, right? That was the one thing that was really getting me about maybe wanting to play for different clubs is you get to see more of the world, and that's true, 
but you still travel a bunch. If you're playing for a, a good club that's playing games on different continents, you're going to see a lot along the way. So I wasn't as drawn by that particular tie. I lean towards the club legend route. I do think that part of the reason why we don't see this stuff so much is it's it's hard to keep up relationships over that period of time, right? It's difficult to continue to get along with the same people that you're seeing, likely at least a few of them carried over from year to year to year to year. It's difficult to do that. And I do think those relationships tend to break down. So maybe I need a backup option just in case I want more playing time or I want less playing time as I get old and they keep doing something that I don't like. But for now, Ryan Bailey, I think club legend. Okay. I appreciate that. Taylor, how do you feel about this one? Just bear in mind, if you move clubs quite a lot, that's that's a lot different 401k plans. That's a nightmare for your financial planner. Just think about your financial planner for a second, will you? Uh, if I had one, sure. I will think about my imaginary <laughs> financial planner. Why not? Uh, I was surprised Erling Holland has actually said this. I guess his dad said it. Is that right, Graham? Yeah. Okay. All yeah, right. his dad gave an interview a couple of weeks ago where he basically said he'd be surprised if his son is at City for more than three years and he wants to play around Europe. Which is basically Real Madrid. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. Uh, pretty much what it means. Maybe PSG. Listener, let me add. Uh, David, in his original question, mentioned Erling Haaland uh, just for the context there. Oh yeah, sorry. Uh, I, yeah, I was just like, okay, I guess that's a, a thing to say as you uh, go about breaking all the goal scoring records. Uh, I think I am probably closer to Joe on this one. I think for most of my life, I would have wanted to be one club man. You play there your whole life, but I think that also would have required me to get to to get to one of those clubs that I would want to be a one-club man for, specifically Manchester United. So I think that seems like it would be an unlikely jump for me. But I also think, as Joe said, as as you get older, maybe you want change of scenery, you want to try different things. I sort of landed on Pep Guardiola's career as being the one that I think is the, is the most appealing to me, where you come through the academy of a club, you, you have this... Guitar. Well, that's the one downside. Let's not talk about guitar for a moment. But it's basically coming through an academy, becoming an important part of this incredibly important team, uh, playing under a legend or uh, legendary managers. But then, yeah, at a certain point, it feels like you're surplus to requirement. You're not being valued enough. And so that's where you look to other opportunities, maybe not Qatar, but Dorados being the one that sort of inspires him in certain ways in the way he approaches management. I think just having those different experiences in different countries, it doesn't have to be playing for the top, top tier of every single league. But I think moving around, the uh, it's a little bit Lutz van Steel near the end, but uh, in the beginning, it's definitely one club legend. Yeah, it's similar to what Dan- Daniele De Rossi did. I thought his career yeah, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. was perfect in that. He, he's still thought of as that one club man for Roma, so he still has that reputation. But the last season of his career, he just went to Boca Juniors and played a season because, not because of money or anything, just because he thought that'd be cool. And I'm kind of surprised that more footballers don't do that because that if I was at a particular level and I'd made my millions and I'd you know achieved everything I could, I would totally just pick the coolest clubs to, to play for. So I would very much be a Daniele De Rossi. Yeah, I like that. I think De Rossi was like, where can I go play that's less chaotic than Rome? Perfect. I've got the idea. I've got it. <laughs> <Blasiris>. <laughs> I, I, I I'm not sure where I fall on this one, Graham. I, yeah. I think so I'd, I, I, I'd say that I would be a one-club man because... If it was my team, if it was Wimbledon. But then mm. I acknowledge the fact that if I was a superstar soccer player in this scenario, yeah, yeah. I couldn't play in League Two. So I think what I do is what uh, the soccer player John Fashnu did back in the day. When he left Wimbledon, he signed a contract saying that he would never play against Wimbledon ever again. So maybe I'd do that. I'd move on to other clubs, but I'd always, my one club, I'd never what? play against them. What's the legal enforcement for that clause in in his contract? Just not turn up on the day that they're going to play Wimbledon. It, it was always, um, I think it was, it was like a 
maybe it wasn't even written down. It was an unspoken contract, and it was a oh, I've got an injury this week kind of situation. He never, right, play, okay. but he never played against us. I think I think it really depends on what level I'm playing at. So if you're not that good, I think you can amplify your reputation by being a, by being excuse me a one club player. So we talked about Tony Hibbert a couple of weeks ago, right? Mm. He's a good example, the goal the goalless wonder. So he 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 was a he was a decent player at Premier League level, but I wouldn't say he was a remarkable talent. And had he left Everton, his career probably not to be harsh or anything, but probably would have been easier to forget. But Everton fans would probably consider him one of their biggest legends in the last 20 years because he was at the, the club for his entire career. So he could have amplified his reputation by being a one-club man. But if you're Erling Haaland, who can pick to play for any club in the world and win everything and be a legend of the sport, not just one club, I, th- I think I would 100% be some sort of elite-level journeyman. And I don't think any player has won the title in each of the big five European leagues. Ancelotti's done it as a manager, but no player has done it to the best of my knowledge. So I think that would be my target if I was Erling Haaland. It would be winning the title in each of the big five leagues and also finding Sarah Connor. <laughs> I don't know. I was going to make a Targary reference. I would not do that because I almost got in trouble last time I did that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I quite like that. I, I think I'd do the same thing ultimately, Graham. I'd want to try and win a league in every in every of the uh, uh, league of the top five nations. I think that would be pretty darn Good. Uh, David, thank you very much for that question. Let's move on to Kenneth Seiden, who says, can you do a deep dive on the women's national team defensive midfield position? Uh, what is Andy Sullivan doing that Black Co likes? And what are some of the less experienced options? And what do they need to improve on? Now, Taylor, I believe coming on the feed shortly, there's a greater expansion on this concept. Yeah, we're going to be talking to the Athletics, Steph Yang, about this and many other uh, topics relating to the U.S. Women's National Team. I will be sure to ask this question to her. Uh, but Joe, I know you've got some thoughts, so I would love to get your uh, info so that I can then uh, steal it and parrot it myself later on. <laughs> sure. So I think Vlatko really does like Andy, Andy Sullivan's experience. She is a little bit older and has more reps than a lot of the other younger names that are in this discussion to potentially play the number six. She also covers ground. Uh, Vlaco six needs to cover a lot of ground with how he has this midfield constructed, or at least it's useful when that happens in the press. That's a big part of how the U.S. wants to play. She doesn't do all that stuff perfectly, but I think she does it better than a lot of the other options that the U.S. has. And she, she's not afraid to get stuck in and get a little bitey in midfield. So I, I think Vlaco appreciates those things about her. Running through some of the other options quickly, Sam Coffey is more of a connector, plays for Portland, rookie in the NWSL. Not super mobile, just in her first season, like I said, of of pro soccer. But I do really like Sam Coffey. I think she's a very good player, and I I would like to see her get a little bit more of a run. Jalen Howell is another one. She's been involved in the national team picture for longer. Has some bite, uh, rookie for uh, Racing Louisville in the NWSL. Not a ton of speed, decent passer. Watching some of her tape yesterday and putting together some of the thoughts I've had on her in the past. I do think Coffee right now is is playing at a higher level. Part of that also could be because Jalen Howe is playing for a or did play this year for a very poor racing Louisville team. Lindsay Oran has played there. Christy Mewis has played there. I think it's pretty clear Vlatko prefers those players higher up the field, and I I don't disagree really. So I think Coffee needs more reps, and and so does Howell. Maybe she needs to expand Coffee her passing range a little bit, and then continue to prove over time that she can make some of those defensive reads that I think Vlatko likes that player to make. Uh, I, I don't know if Kenneth at all is getting at sort of the larger issues around the national team right now. I don't think Andy Sullivan has locked down this spot. Maybe in Blacko's mind she has until 
we get a little more clarity on on Julius's future in in this team. But for me, the number six and and really the personnel period is pretty far down the list of things that's wrong with the U.S. right now. But I do think the number six is an area they could improve on, whether that's Sullivan upping her game, which I just don't think is really going to happen at this point, or maybe trying out someone like Sam Coffey for longer periods of time and not just towards the end of some of these friendlies. I would like to see more of Sam Coffey, and then the U.S. just has a lot of other work to do to, to sort of stay in front of the pack, or at least stay in the, the upper echelons of the, the world right now in terms of women's soccer. Good stuff. Uh, Steph Yang coming on the feed. Steph Yang from The Athletic coming on to talk about the WNT and all else very shortly on the feed. Uh, anyone else on this question before we jump to the next? On to the Good. next. Nope, I think the guys covered it. Excellent. Um, next one comes from Gritty for the Union. Great handle. I'm not biased. Sounds like you are, but Andre Blake has, to, <laughs> has, to, has established himself by now. Andre Blake, that is, has to have established himself by now as one of the greatest number ones in MLS history. I'm curious, what has prevented the Jamaican international from getting snatched up by a major European side for tens of millions of dollars? Graham, your thoughts on this one? So the thing about Andre Blake is that there has been interest in him from Europe in the past, right? So I went back and, 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 and I looked at some of the reporting because I actually remembered it from the time, but about four years ago, there was some pretty solid reporting that said Brighton and Crystal Palace both made, not just that they were interested, they both made bids to sign Blake. Um, and that was after Jamaica's run to the Gold Cup finals. That, what was that, 2018? And that clearly generated some interest in him. The problem, though, was he couldn't get a work permit. Um, and that's always likely to be an issue for Blake if he's going to the UK because the work permit rules are very complicated and basically he needs to play for a country that has been in the top 50 of the FIFA rankings at least at, at one point in the last 10 years for him to be eligible for a work permit. And Jamaica, I think they're currently ranked 64th and that tends to be around about where they are. So he, he's he's not over that threshold and, and rarely will be over that threshold. I'm not sure if Jamaica have been in the top 50 in the last 10 years. So that is, that's always going to be an issue for him. Some other European countries, they have different work permit rules. Portugal always seems to be very loose in that regard, particularly with um, signing South American players. That tends to be why so many Brazilians in particular end up, and obviously there's a language thing there as well, but Portugal has quite loose work permit rules. So perhaps that would be an option for, for Andre Blake. I'm not entirely sure on what the work permit rules would be for, for Jamaica, him coming as a Jamaican national, but that that has been a factor in why Blake hasn't had the interest in him that you might expect. And unfortunately for him, if he was, you know, an American per se, and obviously spent a, a large portion of his career there, if he was an American national, played for the American national team, then this would be less of an issue for him and maybe he might have actually got that move. Hmm. Interesting. Joe, what do you think about this one? Um, obviously, Andre Blake is pretty darn talented. I mean, we know that Roma Berkey is going to be the greatest goalkeeper of all time in <laughs> St. Louis startup. Uh, according to uh, MLS data, he's going to be earning $1.63 million in guaranteed compensation, which is about double what Blake brings in. So that that's, that's a given. He's going to be the greatest of all time. But Blake's certainly up there. Yeah, so it's it's a mixture of of a, of, a few, of a few different things here for Andre Blake. Timing is one, age is one, and performance really is the other. So we're we're not really seeing players get sold for ten million dollars from Major League Soccer on any sort of regular basis, and we're certainly not seeing goalkeepers get sold from Major League Soccer on a regular basis. We're just starting to see outfielders get get moved on for numbers in that range occasionally. 
but it's not common and no goalkeeper out of Major League Soccer has ever been sold to my knowledge for a number that could even reach 10 million. So that's part of it is Andre Blake was, was never going to make that much, was never going to make the union that much money because that's just not happening right now. He's too early on in MLS's entrance into the global market. The other piece of this is that Andre Blake has really only been a next level goalkeeper in MLS for the last three years. His numbers, the last three years are off the charts. His numbers back in 2017, 2018, 2019, not nearly as good and not nearly as good as someone you would expect to get, you know, eight figures out of a, out of a transfer. So for me, like I said, it's a mixture of timing. Andre Blake's a little too early on in his MLS career, or it was a little too early to MLS to really make a big money move to Europe as a goalkeeper. Uh, and then age is another one, like I said, in performance is he just hasn't quite been there for long enough. If Andre Blake was 23, 24, 25 right now, instead of 31, yeah, he might actually go for $10 million. I'm curious to see what Georgie Petrovic is going to go for with New England, who's been just incredible for the Revs for the entire time he was on the field for them this season. We'll see. I've already sort of seen some rumblings on Twitter about maybe him being uh, pretty highly valued by a number of different European teams. But yeah, I don't think Andre Blake has a big money move left in him at this point. Okay. Taylor, your thoughts on this one? Do you concur with Gritty for the Union's yeah. unbiased opinion that he's one of the greatest number ones in MLS history? Uh, I don't know. I honestly don't have a good answer for that one. I, I would say yes, just because he's been around in my mind for so long and done so many very good things for them. I think if they win MLS Cup, that moves him up the rankings a little bit, though I'm not sure who the other contenders would be for that one. So uh, Joe probably better qualified to answer that one. I would say Joe and Graham have done an amazing job of answering this question. Uh, especially Graham, like the work permit stuff I, ha- I genuinely hadn't thought about. And that does make so much sense and does shed a, a huge amount of light on it. Joe, I think your answer also, uh, basically those two combined take up about 80% of my answer. So I will just add um, that basically... If there were another European club looking to to bring him in, I think there's always the fact that aside from Jamaica's ranking, they're just they don't get a ton of coverage. They're not going to the World Cup. And so you look at, say, Costa Rica, when they have the success they do in the World Cup and it's Kalo Navas backstopping them and making these amazing saves that kind of launches him into the spotlight. I don't think Andre Blake for Jamaica has that opportunity. So I think there's there's not quite as much interest. And then on top of that. I am old enough to remember uh, Philly having a fair amount of instability at that position. Rice and Bole, anyone? Uh, so I think there's also probably not that much inclination to sell from the union. I think they're happy to have a stable, reliable, uh, top class, uh, for the league at least, uh, goalkeeper uh, between the sticks. And so they're happy to keep him. They're not really looking for, for moves unless some blockbuster comes through. But I think Joe and Graham have outlined pretty successfully why that move isn't likely to come through. Marvellous stuff. Thank you, Gritty, for the union, GFTU, as we shall now call you. We'll be back after this break with a few more questions. Back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Guy Yedweb has been in touch, who says, I understand Liga de Mekis format on paper but not how it feels for fans. A winning the Apertura and Clausura equivalent feats is a coach who dominates the Apertura and then bombs in the Clausura on the hot seat. Does anyone care about the points total across both, aside from the League's Cup? Do you only get to call yourself the best team in Mexico for half a year? Interesting question here from Guy. Uh, of course, uh, Liga Mekis in Mexico has a, 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 a two-part season structure, the Apertura and the Clausura, the opening and the closing, one running from July to December, and the Clausura running from January to May. 18 teams playing each other once in each tournament. Uh, home and away legs are flipped for each tournament as well. And then the winners of each of those two tournaments face each other in the Campion de Campiones game. Uh, Taylor, what, what did you what did you make of this question? Obviously, it's, it's a little difficult for us to ascertain yeah. how it feels for fans because we are not Liga de Mekis fans in Mexico. Correct. What I did read uh, has me thinking that it's not a particularly popular system that they have in place. Uh, It does seem like both of them are equally prestigious. If you win one, if you win the other, that's great. You won one or the other. Uh, But but uh, you don't really get that like, okay, like even if there is that sort of the champion plays the champion, I don't think there's as much interest in that because by that point, it's sort of like, oh, that was six months ago. Yeah, I guess they were good, but they finished mid table in the last iteration. So you're basically getting a mid table team now versus the champions now. I'm not sure how much interest there is. And from what I read, it seems like the at least a large percentage or some percentage of the fan base feels like it exists now because it's the easiest way to make money that you can immediately have playoffs. I think 12 of the 18 uh, qualify for the playoffs. So you're getting most people, most teams in to the playoffs where you can then make money on uh, the interest that's generated there. So I don't know if that's just the the kind of sources I was reading. I think it also doesn't help that promotion relegation was suspended uh, for the last uh, couple iterations, I do believe. So 
I think if you're looking at like, yeah, you're the best team for a half a year and then you start back over and maybe you have a hard time repeating or putting it together or maybe you've lost some players and now you're the eighth best team, it does feel like it would be a little bit of a bummer not to get that that whole year of being a champion. Yeah, Graham, I think I found that in my research that it's not the most popular format and it has been common in Latin America. It's used in a few Latin American countries, mm. but like Argentina don't use it anymore I don't, and Brazil haven't used it for a long time, this, this two two-section season structure. Yeah, I should add... Sorry, Graham, just to jump in real quick. I should add also, I think it's not the system itself that people are frustrated with. It is the Mexican Federation and sort of some of the owners, the way owners are allowed to operate, what they're allowed to do. Uh, there's obviously like the stadium riot that that I think like breeds a lot of frustration and anger. And so I think... Mexico specifically, from what I read, there's a feeling that this system doesn't really benefit the players, the league as a whole. Not trying to speak to uh, Apertura Clausura, broadly speaking, but mostly just for Mexico. Yeah, I I think, so my personal opinion, I know that wasn't the guy's question. It was more about how fans in Mexico feel about the the, the format. But it it is confusing, and I think it, it, it makes more sense when you try and think about why it's like this and i found some reasoning uh, it's there to to kind of boost ticket sales so that the first half of the season doesn't suffer from what i would say the mls season suffers from when a, maybe a lot of casual fans don't tune in and talk to, until the uh, towards the end of 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 uh, of the regular season so i i understand why it's like this but i think any league format where you need more than 30 seconds to explain how it works and how a team actually wins it and how you get relegated from it, that may, maybe that's not the best league format, in my opinion. Yeah, inclined to agree. Joe, uh, any perspective on this? I think you technically live the closest to Mexico it's true. out of all of us. It's true. I, I actually really do like the format. I don't think it's that confusing. It does require a little bit more explanation than like a regular regular season does, but it's not... It's not that hard. If I can understand it, it's not that difficult to grasp. So I do. How did you get relegated? That was my main question. Okay, Graham, let's stay on target here. Let's not divert (laughs) into that. I don't. I didn't read about that. But I will say, I do like the fact that it's split into two seasons because I do think, like you said, it, it sort of gets around some of the issues that Major League Soccer has. So anyway, getting to the actual question from some of the folks that I've asked and from what I've read. Like Taylor said, both the Apertura and Clausura are regarded equally from everything that I've read. Both are prestigious, both are important, both are equal. And yes, any coach who's bombing after even doing well in in one of those seasons is going to be on the hot seat because that's how soccer in Mexico works. That's the reality, 100%. And no one cares from what I have asked around about. No one cares about your points total across both competitions other than as Guy says in his question, League's Cup, which does draw a little bit from that uh, as far as seeding goes in League's Cup. So Nobody cares about that And, either, and so. no one yet cares oh, about League's will. Cup. Maybe that will change. Maybe not. <laughs> either way, I believe that checks off all the questions that Guy asked. Uh, it does indeed. And yeah, Graham, the, the, the relegation process is pretty complicated and convoluted. And I think a lot of it is to do with... Um, not a lot of teams meet the standard that Liga Mekis requires to be promoted up to the league, which I think is to do with stadiums and having at least 18 sponsors on your shirt and that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I I tried to read into it in my research and I'm not kidding. I I don't understand (laughs) it. It didn't click in my mind. So yeah, I think any format that you have to do research into is maybe not the best. And in terms of, do you only get to call yourself the best team in Mexico for half a year? I guess that has to be a yes, doesn't it? Yeah. No, I I think so too, unless you do what Atlas did and win both, in which case that's even bigger, that's even even more impressive accomplishment. I don't think that's 
Like, I, I don't think that's that big of a deal either in terms of a hurdle to get into the league. You're the best team until there's a new champion. And, and the way Mexico does it is that there's a champion twice a year, and that's just kind of how this game works. There you go. You're a champion too. You're not a champion, as they say in the beautiful <laughs> game. Thank you very much, Guy, for that question. One more here from Peter Shark. In the episode featuring Adam Richmond, Ryan revealed there is a dollar amount he can be paid to wear a Spurs jersey. Ooh, shudder. I won't be uncouth and ask the exact dollar amount, but for each... I will. Yeah, okay. <laughs> for each of the... I'll tell Five you bucks. Too. For each of the hosts, other than your <laughs> primary clubs, what other jersey would you wear for free? What other jersey would you have to be paid a small amount to wear? And what other jersey would you have to be paid a large amount of money to wear? Now, Graham, this is an interesting one for you. You do have, obviously, a, a team, Sterling Albion, but also you pay money to wear every yeah. jersey. So the first part of that question doesn't work for me because, obviously, I, I do more than just wear other clubs' shirts for free, I actually pay them to, yeah. to wear their shirts. So yeah, the first the first part of that question maybe doesn't apply to me. Are there any shirts you wouldn't wear, Graham? So I'd never wear a Stennis Muir shirt. So they're one of Albion's local rivals. We beat them at the weekend, which was very sweet. Two late goals. I enjoyed that very much. Um, traditionally, they're not actually our biggest rivals. So that's Aloha and Falkirk. Um, but I used to report on Aloha and Falkirk matches in one of my first jobs for a local paper and everyone was really quite nice there uh, at Aloha in particular you always got brought a sausage roll and a cup of tea at halftime so obviously I can't hate them Steny though they, they are easy to hate and everyone there is very rude and they didn't even have a speciality pie when I visited on Saturday so yeah I would I would never wear their shirt and when I was think, thinking about this one the other two that I came up with, because Stennis Muir is an obvious one, they're, they're an Albion rival, that's that's easy. But the other two I came up with were Celtic and Rangers. So I, I don't hold any great animosity to either of those clubs, but if you're Scottish and you're you're not an Old Firm fan, Old Firm fan, it's the unwritten rule that on some level you're anti-Old Firm. And both of those shirts come with all sorts of connotations attached that say something about your identity, which may or may not apply to me. So... Yeah, I think wearing a Celtic or Rangers shirt would feel really wrong, and I'm pretty sure I've never done it in my life, and I don't anticipate ever doing it. Wow. Taylor, your uh, your thoughts on the shirt debate here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richmond Kickers shirts, I assume, are, are a plenty in your wardrobe, Man United shirts too. Anything else you would wear for free or you wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole? Uh, I, I wear Ford Madison jerseys all the time, which gets me in trouble with my Richmond Kickers friends, but they are very good pool shirts. Uh, the, the, the pink, the blue, I like them quite a bit. Uh, Edgewater Castle, I will happily rep. Same for Napoli, uh, FC St. Pauli, Galatasaray, DC United, and Sterling Albion. Uh, why not for free? Yes. Uh, nice. In terms of uh, nopes, jerseys that I will never wear, Charleston Battery, they know why, uh, and MK Dons in solidarity with Ryan Bailey. Um, uh, a large amount to wear would be City PSG Newcastle because they can afford it. Fenerbahce, uh, Austin, which is not a shot at Austin itself, but I don't need Anthony Precourt getting any of my money, so I don't think I'm going to be nice wearing shirts though. Uh, yeah, I mean they're very nice. That's the thing. I really like them, but I don't want to give Anthony Precourt money. I will wear an Austin like supporter shirt. That's fine with me. Although I guess that would get me in trouble too. And then for a small amount of money, I would wear Juve, Real Madrid, Barcelona, uh, Wimbledon, because Ryan has to buy it, literally Wrexham, since they did buy ads on our show, and Mexico's current kit used to be, and you'd have to, Mexico used to be like, you'd have to pay me a large amount, but that current uh, kit is, is pretty awesome. So maybe just a small amount would get me wearing a Mexico shirt. 
Taylor, I'm so sorry I didn't hear any of your answers because at the start you said you wear four Madison shirts at the pool and I'm just picturing you holding a white claw, captain's hat on, just doing a little jig in your four Madison shirt by the pool while there's some like nice soft music playing. Silver chain too, and no, I'm not joking. Wow. Yeah, that's completed the image. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. And are you in- Silence was the appropriate response to that. Yeah. And do you wow. jump into like one of those little pool rings and float around and do you call yourself the party dog? Uh, and stuff? I mean, no, see, the thing that you're forgetting here is I have a toddler. So no, it's mostly just me being yelled at to jump into the inner tube and then get out of the inner tube and then get back into it while I need to get the toy at the same time. So it's less of a white claw, uh, yeah. more of me uh, juggling her various toys. <laughs> that was uh, slightly... Deflating answer to that question. <laughs> but yeah, also party wolf. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Joseph, how do you feel about this question? Uh, Phoenix Rising, I assume you've got uh, got that in your locker. What 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 do you like? What don't you like in, in jerseys? So I don't feel like I have a lot of beef with most teams. I'm pretty happy to Say wear. Austin. Say Austin. I don't even, I don't have beef with Austin. Austin manufactured the beef, just Red like Bulls. the Red Bulls have Red manufactured Bulls. this beef. Um... <laughs> I'll wear Stenhouse I'll wear Muir. whatever. I actually have a New York Red Bulls T-shirt, but I think I just got rid of it actually before this weekend because it, it it was old. Anyway, um, I don't have beef with many teams, so I will wear pretty much any jersey. I can do the whole solidarity thing, Taylor. I think that's a nice touch. So no MK Dons, no whichever clubs Graham hates. I forgot which one was rude, but I will not be wearing that one. Or Stanny. Yeah, none of that. Give Graham a pie already. Come on now. And Taylor, whichever clubs you want me to avoid, that's fine. Phoenix Rising have a rivalry with New Mexico United Fenerbahce. in the USL Championship. Don't ever so, wear a yeah. shirt, Joe. Okay, no, no Fenerbahce. Check. Done. Nailed it. I think I have a Fenerbahce shirt. Get rid of that thing right now. Graham. <laughs> Graham. I definitely do. Wow. That's <laughs> embarrassing. Sorry, you love Erdogan. That's embarrassing for you. Um, so, <laughs> I uh, no, no New Mexico United for me, although I would definitely wear it for a very small amount of money because I'm not that passionate about the rivalry. And we can toss Mexico and England in there as well. I can be bought on all of those for well, England, very little, but they are on my sort of more no-no list and the rest of the clubs, which are not really on any list. Thanks, Joe. I almost had Graham wearing an England shirt there until you said it. <laughs> Graham, Graham, I thought about England too, but I, I could see a, a soccer jersey in, in my lifetime. I could see that happening. <laughs> I de- I, I, that is not in my lifetime. Uh, England's getting added to that list. Stannis Muir in England. I'd say, from my perspective, my slightly monastic view of shirts has softened over the years. Like when I was younger, I would only ever consider Wimbledon shirts. I would never wear anything else. I didn't own an English shirt until 2012 after I'd moved to the States when I sort of got into that national team thing a little bit more. But now I think I'd wear Wimbledon shirts. I'd wear Charlotte FC because I love Charlotte and. That, that that's cool. Uh, England shirts, of course, and I think I'd wear USMNT shirts as well. Would you wear another English club shirt, though, besides Wimbledon, obviously? Well, as the as Peter's question stated, I have once done that. Um, I worked uh, at the International Champions Cup. I PA'd a couple of Spurs games, one in Nashville and one in New Jersey. And uh, the exact dollar amount that I will take to do that is the exact dollar amount that Tottenham paid me to do that. <laughs> Is the answer to the answer to the question? That's how much of a sellout I am. Uh, but I was glad that my dad never knew about that because um, he would not. Out, have out of choice, that. though, would you would you ever wear an, another English club shirt? Because that for for me, I don't know if I own any other. I think I have an Aberdeen hoodie, mm. and the reason I have that hoodie is because we did a a project for Aberdeen a few years ago, and I, and I got given it for free by Aberdeen. So it was a it was a freebie, and I will accept all freebies, <laughs> including from Stenis Muir and English FA. Um, but 
I don't know if I'd be able to wear another Scottish team's no. shirt. That, that's that's where I draw the line, as, uh, as as you say, Graham. I wouldn't wear another team in England that Aves of Wimbledon could, in theory, play against. Um, and in terms of ones that you couldn't pay me to wear, Tottenham would be high up there, although, as uh, uh, as noted previously, I'm a sellout on that respect. I think Man United, no offence, Taylor, but that would be the one I'd least like to wear of any other English shirt, apart from the obvious Milton Keynes one. Offence taken. Because... Growing up in the 90s, <laughs> in a in the playground in South London where I grew up, where 60-70% mm, of kids were Man United fans, and Manchester's quite far from London, and there's lots of London clubs, and it was just because it, that, that whole thing riled me a little bit as a fan of a London club. So It would be an image of everything that you didn't want to become in your life, yes. you and a Man United show. Successful, you mean, Graham? It's just a photo yeah. of him living in Rome is pretty much <laughs> that right now. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, but that's it. I think I think um, I- I'm probably a bit stricter on the shirt thing than others here. That's fair to say. Maybe. Okay. Yeah, I-, I have no rules. Yeah. I am willing to be bought for a very small amount of money for pretty much any shirt. Mm. And you'll even want to buy a shirt that someone's put your name on surreptitiously. I do as well. I d- yeah. I would most like that shirt actually of any at the moment. <laughs> although that opinion may change over time. Yeah, I'd like one as well. If, if they're available for purchase. All right. Is there any one shirt from each of you that you absolutely, under no circumstances, would wear? What's the one that you definitely would? Mine's obviously an MK Don shirt because they're not a real club and shouldn't exist. Graham, is there is there <laughs> one that's the totally off the off limits? Um, that's close to a World Cup. It's got to be England, hasn't it? Yeah. For similar reasons, for me, a Rafa Marquez Mexico jersey it ain't happening. <laughs> I'm and retweeting. Joe? I'm retweeting Graham's England take. Yes, Joe. Boo. You think you know someone. You think you know someone, listener. <laughs> All right, that's Listener Questions wrapped up. Thank you, everybody, for submitting your questions. TotalSoccerShow.com slash questions if you want to send us one. We do appreciate it when you do. Remember, live show coming out November 20th in Brooklyn. Please come and see us. Tickets in the description. But for now, Graham Ruthven, thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Joe Lowry, pleasure as always. Right back at you, Ryan. And Taylor Rockwell, you party animal who has to look after his kids by the pool. Take care. Party wolf, woo! <laughs> Listener, thank party you. Party wolf, woo. What was that? Party what? <laughs> party wolf, woo. Party Got wolf, it. ow, ow! There you go. <laughs> Even better. Good upgrade. <laughs> Listener, thank you very much for joining us. We'll be back on the feed very shortly. But for now, bye! As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.